Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello, and a warm welcome back to my 70s TV childhood the podcast which celebrates growing up in Britain during the 1970s and the TV programmes that accompanied our childhood. If you're joining us for the first time, where have you been? If not, hello again and thanks for listening. After our last episode, Sporting Life, which featured memories of watching sport in the 1970s, I've had lots of positive feedback, but also a complaint. One of our listeners has pointed out that neither I nor my guest Ross mentioned women's sport in our discussion. Well, I'm happy to put my hands up and apologise for that omission. Whilst there was not as much coverage of women's sport as there is today, it was foolish of me to neglect some of the fantastic memories I have of watching great female athletes during my childhood. Whether it was Billie Jean King, Chris Evert or Martina Navratilova, The prowess and power of that classic generation of tennis players lives in my memory. And who can forget Virginia Wade winning the championship in 1977 and receiving the trophy from the Queen in her Silver Jubilee year? I've also noticed that Her Majesty hasn't graced the tournament since, as far as I'm aware, leaving tennis to other family members while she concentrates on other things like horse racing. The truth is, that elite women's sport was not featured on TV as much as men's. And that was partly a product of the times, but doesn't do our society at the time much credit. However, it's also true that since then, the participation levels and the quality of elite women's sport have increased enormously, and there is now some excellent coverage of women's sport, most notably football, cricket, hockey, rugby, and of course netball, to complement the already excellent coverage of women's athletics and tennis. I'm sure that the much wider coverage of women's sport can only lead to greater participation and even higher quality in the future. Now, to today's subject for discussion, the public information film. For those not in the UK and for our younger listeners, the public information film was an institution in the UK for over 60 years. A government agency, the rather Orwellian-titled Central Information Office, was responsible for commissioning and distributing the films until its closure in 2011. The Central Office of Information was established in 1946, when our then Prime Minister Clement Attlee announced that the wartime, and I suspect genuinely Orwellian, Ministry of Information would be closed down but that official information services still had an important and permanent part in the machinery of government, and that the public should be adequately informed about the many matters in which government action directly impinges on their daily lives. The COI produced a wide range of information campaigns, designed to inform the public on a huge range of issues which affected their daily lives, such as health, welfare, education and rights. These were groundbreaking projects and they've helped to shape attitudes and change public behaviour 
as well as providing us citizens with important information. The COI's vast archive of work is now available online via the British Film Institute and their BFI player, and these films provide a unique historical insight into post-war British culture. So why do they deserve an episode of my 70s TV childhood? Well, they feature very strongly in my memories of what was on television as I was growing up. Not only were they a regular feature of programming, but some of them were extremely well made and carried very powerful messages, which I can still remember. Not only were they a regular feature of programming, but some of them were extremely well made and carried powerful messages, which I can still remember, so they must have been effective. Indeed, some of them were so horrific in their attempts to get serious messages to their audience that I'm sure some viewers were scarred for life by the horrors they witnessed in them. The films didn't just use horror. They could be funny. They were often very clever, and they always found a way to get their message across simply and effectively. I found myself unable to turn over or switch off when the words were announced, there now follows a public information film, as I really wanted to watch them. Whether they made you laugh, shocked you, or simply showed you how to cross the road, their impact lives on in a generation of children who learned important messages from these mini-masterpieces, which rarely lasted more than a minute. For what it's worth, I've been giving this some thought, and I want to share my top 10 public information films with you. Let me know which ones you remember by going to our blog, www.my70stvchildhood.com, tweeting me at 70stvchildhood, or emailing me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. So, in reverse order, my favourites are, at number 10, is a film which probably wasn't strictly a public information film, as I never remember seeing it on television. It was called The Finishing Line, and I remember watching it at primary school, probably age 10, so 1977 or 78. And I can truly say that I and most of my classmates at Padgate Church of England Primary School were left traumatised as a result. As I mentioned earlier, one of the key techniques of these films was to terrify the viewers into not doing things. There are a number of films set on building sites, where death lurked at every turn. There was one featuring water on building sites, where the Grim Reaper literally stood by the edge of the water, waiting for errant children, so that he could drag them under the water to their deaths. Even the countryside wasn't immune from violent death, as one film showed us a huge variety of ways in which children could be killed by tractors, falling hay bales and other mishaps. There was even one film, highlighting the dangers of getting trapped in old fridges. As a result, I and my generation were sometimes terrified of doing all kinds of normal things, from crossing the road to even thinking about setting foot in the countryside. But the most likely place to meet a terrible end, according to the public information films, was the railway. All kinds of dire things happened to children who went anywhere near it. I'm surprised my generation ever used public transport, and the most disturbing in all of these railway-related films was The Finishing Line. As we all sat in the school hall, the lights dimmed, the projector whirred into action, and what followed was 20 minutes 
of misery. The premise was that a school sports day was being held on the railway tracks. And over the course of four or five sports day type events, what seemed like scores of young children met horrific and bloody ends on the tracks. Unlike most of the other films of this kind, you weren't left imagining what happened to the victims. And after lots of falls under trains, severed limbs, and a train driver being hit on the head with a brick, we were left with a line of bodies laid by the track. I haven't seen this film in over 40 years, but I still remember parts of it graphically. Did it work? Probably. At number nine, I have the Amber Gambler a reckless driver who ran through traffic lights when they were changing to red and set off the moment they turned to amber. He was a Terry Thomas-like sneering figure in a sharp suit and a trilby who ended up crashing into another amber gambler who, in the main twist, turned out to be him. Clever, eh? Given the way people drive today, the amber gambler is probably the least of our worries. Number eight in my list is the Think Bike campaign where a number of celebrities, including rather bizarrely Jimmy Hill, demonstrated how difficult it was to see a motorbike compared to a car by striking their fist and the side of their hands on a table. As a child, it was clearly memorable, but it was very popular with me and my friends. It allows us to bang our fists on the table and claim it was in a good cause. Think once, think twice, think bike. At seven in my slightly rambling chart, it's the advertising campaign for the revolutionary Pelican Crossing. Now, for our younger listeners, who are used to crossing the road at traffic lights which tell you when you can and can't cross by using a green or red person, this was a new innovation in the 1970s, and the Central Office of Information decided we needed to be trained in how to use the pedestrian light-controlled, or Pelican, crossing. It really was as basic as it sounded telling viewers to cross when the green man was shown, not to enter the crossing area once the green man had started flashing, and not to cross when the red man was showing. Charming, really. On a similar theme, number six sees Green Cross Codeman make an appearance. Dave Prowse, later to play Darth Vader in Star Wars, was the superhero in a tight, and I mean very tight-fitting bodysuit, which left nothing to the imagination. Green Cross Codeman watched over children crossing the road and made sure they followed the Green Cross Code. Look left, look right, and look left again, then start crossing the road. Apparently, the earliest versions of these films caused a number of accidents where children had stepped out in front of traffic, expecting Green Cross Codeman to magically appear and rescue them. So later films in the series ended with Dave telling us, Always follow the Green Cross Code, because I won't be there when you cross the road. And to think, there are still some who insist that television doesn't influence children's behaviour. What were your most memorable public information films? Let me know on the blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com Tweet me at 70stvchildhood or email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com Now, before we go on to the top five, it's time to hear from one of our listeners.
And I'm delighted to be joined once again by one of our listeners, Gillian, who joined us in an earlier episode to talk about her memories of Watch With Mother. Hello, Gillian. Hello, Oliver. Thanks very much for joining us again on My 70s TV Childhood. Uh, Today, we're talking about public information films, which many of us remember fondly from our childhoods. And you've got some particular memories. Yes, I've got two particular memories. One is of Joe and Petunia. And Joe was this terrible, hapless, helpless man. And Petunia was this terrible, loud, useless woman. And the one I remember particularly, I remember being quite shocked by it, was the litter they were leaving all over the countryside. And all sorts of things were happening. I think they were leaving things, they were throwing things, leaving gates open. And I remember being very shocked by that. And then there was this like a caricature of an angry farmer jumping up and down and they they thought he was just trying to say hello to them. So I do remember that. And I remember also one when they were on the the clifftop at the seaside and there was somebody out on a a small boat, a sailing dinghy. I remember that's what it said. It's a sailing dinghy. That's what it's called. And the person was in distress and getting capsized and waving and eventually eventually they realized he wasn't saying hello to them and they didn't know him from their seaside hotel but they had to call the coast guard ah dial the coast guard the fourth emergency service 999 call the coast guard and what was interesting as well thinking about it i'm I'm not sure i thought about it at the time is that joe and petunia had very i don't know generalized regional accents midlands-ish north-ish but Dial 99 for the Coast Guard was definitely more in, uh, in your received pronunciation. And I, I, yeah, and I think that's a, probably a thread through the public information films. But whether I was conscious of that at the time, I wouldn't like to say. So what do you think our elders and betters in the south of England were telling the rest of the country what to do? Is that what uh, I think so. And there was so much to tell us not to do because it, what these films seemed to say was that the world was a very dangerous place. You were going to drown. You were going to burn. You were going to get flooded. You were going to be abducted. You were certainly going to be run over or crashed into. <laughs> I do remember an awful lot of road traffic stuff. The Roadhog, I remember the Roadhog. Don't be rude on the road. And again, I think that was don't be rude on the road. And and there was a but there was definitely a feeling that although it was comic and certainly sticks in the mind, the world was quite a dangerous place then. Well it always seemed to me, I mean, I think there's a whole generation of children in the UK who are scarred who I mean I I was scared to go to the country because of all the t- horrible things that could happen to you <laughs> on a farm. You know, <laughs> yeah. you could be have a hay bale fall on your head or be impaled on some kind of spiky agricultural machinery. So there are all kinds of things. Everywhere was very dangerous, and, and particularly uh, the railway and the roads, as you say. So, so what other memories do you have? A pleasant, soft memory, talking about roads, is, of course, Tufty Fluffy Tail. And I'm sure I enjoyed watching Tufty Fluffy Tail when, really, I wasn't the target audience at all. Uh, Mrs. Fluffy Tail and Tufty Fluffy Tail. And that was, that was very gentle. They were very nice, probably animated models or puppets or something. But it's interesting because I do remember that they were red squirrels. Tufty Fluffy Tail and his family, they were red squirrels. And that is significant now because, of course, now we haven't got so many red squirrels. Of course, yes. But I also remember my mother used to make up bedtime stories. And uh, one of my favourites that she made up, it was like a series, was Rusty and Reddy, the two little squirrels. So they must have been red squirrels. So at the time, 
I just thought squirrels were red. And then obviously as you get older and learn about it. So that's that's a bit of history, really. Oh, it is. That's a lovely memory. Yeah, I think fondly of Tufty as well, because I think it was Bernard Cribbins who provided the voices. Oh, was it? Um, I think it was. I think it was from memory. Although I, I always remember that uh, it wasn't wasn't very good to be one of Tufty's friends because the likelihood was that you were going to get run over by something at some point. I think particularly um, Willie Weasel, oh, yeah. who uh, I think gave uh, gave away the sort of the, the typecasting a little bit. I seem to remember Willie Weasel getting knocked down, having run across the road, having bought an ice cream. Oh. See, that was something that he never wanted to do. No. So I, mean, I think again, I think ice cream sales must have plummeted across the country <laughs> thanks to Willie Weasel being being knocked down. But but very, very gentle. I mean, I remember in the days when the community policemen used to come to our primary school and encourage us all to join the Tufty Club. And I do believe I still have a badge somewhere. Oh, that's nice. Do you wear it? I haven't worn it for some time, but it is also it's inspired one of the membership tiers for, for this podcast. So if you uh, listen at the end of the programme, your details of how you can become a Tufty Club badge member. Well, I'll have to consider that then. No, well, thanks for that, Gillian. It's, it's interesting you touch on a point there. A lot of these films seem to be quite directive. How effective do you think that was for generations growing up in, I guess, the, the post-war generations, 50s, 60s, 70s, being told what to do in effect? Well, I think it must have had an impact. I mean, obviously, all those road traffic things, because there were more and more cars on the road and people were becoming more and car ownership was increasing so much, I suppose... We've remembered them. I mean, they are very vivid, whether it's Tufty or whether it's Call the Coast Guard or whether it's Don't Run Out Into the Traffic. So, yes, it was directive. And I've already talked about perhaps the difference in in accents. I certainly think in that sense they were effective because we're all all remembering them now, uh, so many many decades and decades later. And the the other thing I think about is – I think they were very well done. I mean, again, at the time, mm. they just they just caught your attention or you, you listened to them or you watched them and were frightened or amused or whatever. But I think they must have been pretty well put together, the script writers, the animators, the filmmakers. And I wonder, I've no idea, but you know how um, several very well-known authors, for example, Faye Weldon, Salman Rushdie, they started their careers before they became famous novelists as advertising copywriters. And I wonder whether there are some, you know, well-known filmmakers or scriptwriters that actually started off doing the public information films. I think there certainly, there certainly were. I mean, one that I know of is, now make sure I get his name right, John McKenzie, who directed one of my favourite films, The Long Good Friday. Oh, yeah. He made several public information films before mm. he, he got that commission. Because as you say, I mean, one of the reasons I think they, the messages do just resonate and are remembered so well is that these films were so well made, well written, well shot, uh, and last. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because that's just a theory that just came to me. But if you say the guy who did Long Good Friday, that's how he had his start. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me because the, the technical, again, you don't think of it as a child, but but the impact that they had and, and the way they actually drew you in was very skillful. So it doesn't surprise me that people went on to, to careers built upon that. No, that's interesting. And, and for the rest of this episode, I'm going to be completing my top 10 of public information films. So the big question is, do Joe and Petunia and Tufty Fluffy Tail and his friends make the top five. 
You'll have to listen in and find out. I will do. Well, that's lovely, Gillian. Thanks very much for sharing your memories with us yet again. It's been great to have you on My 70s TV Childhood. It's been nice to be here again. So, on to my top five public information films. And at number five, I'm going to cheat and choose two films. Not because of the message necessarily, but who the filmmakers saw as appropriate messengers for important subjects. Rolf Harris's Learn to Swim films and Jimmy Savile's Clunk Click Every Trip campaign were hard-hitting safety messages delivered by men who were enormously popular in the 1970s, but whose reputations had been destroyed in subsequent years. Rolf told us how he nearly drowned as a young boy in the bush before learning to swim, and Jimmy Savile showed us how to wear a seatbelt before we saw footage of some unfortunate person smashing headfirst through a car windscreen. These films were shown again and again, to the point where children knew the words by heart, which I guess proves how effective they were. Number four sees Joan Petunia in the chart, as referenced by our listener Gillian in her interview. This odd pair reminded me of couples on naughty seaside postcards, and their behaviour, as we've heard, was outrageous. But after all these years, I still remember them, and the message of the films, so powerfully were they put across. In third place on my list is the public information film about TV detector vans. For our non-UK listeners, our public service television in the UK, i.e. the BBC, is paid for by a compulsory licence fee. Legally, you are not allowed to watch TV without a TV licence. In the 60s and 70s, a major weapon against TV licence fee evasion was the TV detector van. These futuristic vans, with huge rotating antennae on top, prowled the streets of Britain looking for evil licence fee evaders and striking fear into the nation. There was a marvellous film about the detector vans, which showed them at work, and they were able to pinpoint transgressors so accurately that the operator of the mysterious detection equipment could say, There is a television set operating in number five. It's in the front room, and they're watching Columbo. Now, for a child in the 70s, this was something else. What brilliant technology the BBC had. And it was inevitable to me that if you didn't have a TV licence, you get caught. As I grew up, however, I became a bit more cynical. I never saw a TV detective van in Warrington, and surely such technology was beyond even the BBC in the 70s. Well, probably even beyond them today. The corporation has always stayed tight-lipped about it, but I suspect it was all a bit of what scientists refer to as malarkey. Licence fee evaders were detected by people knocking on their door and finding a television in the front room. So the people in number five of the film may have been watching Columbo, but the only way the TV detective and operator could have found this out was if he got out and looked through the window, I suspect. Second place in my chart goes to the Charlie Says films, or... Meow, 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 meow. 
These animated films were revolutionary in that they dealt with some pretty heavy subject matter, ranging from playing with matches to child abduction, but dealt with it in a realistic and sensitive way. Well, notwithstanding the talking cat, of course. Charlie the Cat was full of advice. When the little boy, who was the main character and narrator, was asked by a stranger if he'd like to see some puppies, Charlie the Cat was able to say just the right thing. Once again, the messages were so powerfully put across that I still remember them today. And so, to my number one, and thank goodness for that, some of our listeners are saying, as you may have already guessed, it has to be Tufty Fluffy Tail and his pals bringing road safety to the mean streets of Britain. Tufty and the accompanying Tufty Club ran in the UK from 1953, and millions of us joined the Tufty Club, often through events at school and, as in my case, events run by community police officers. His popularity is hard to explain in the context of today's society. But back then, he was a simple, good little squirrel who wanted to be safe crossing the road, as we all did as children. There were lots of bad things out in the world, as we saw in many of the horrific public information films already referred to. But Tufty was a representative of a simpler time when, I guess we didn't mind too much being told what to do. So that concludes our brief foray into the world of the public information film. There isn't anything like them on the screen today. Perhaps it's a good thing that we don't like being told what to do anymore. But the messages we had from those films are ones which I and my generation still remember. So they must have been pretty effective in getting their message across. That's all for now. Take care, especially when you're crossing the road, using the railway or venturing onto a farm or building site. And I'll see you again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood. If you've enjoyed listening and want to support the show, you can do so by visiting my Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash Oliver Collin, where you will find details of our membership tiers. For £2 a month, you can join the Tufty Club, get a shout out on a future episode, and learn how to cross the road safely, even when your mummy and daddy aren't there. Or for £5 a month, you can be a Blue Peter Badge member, and as well as getting a shout out, you can be my guest on a future episode, and also stroke Petra, Patch, Shep, Jason and Goldie and also see Frieda the Tortoise's hibernation box. All memberships are totally flexible and can be cancelled at any time. My sincere thanks for your support.